This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus, it's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider, and I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Elena Santigade. Before we get started today, I wanted to say at the top of the show this time, you, our listeners, we are always excited to hear from you. Please let us know what you think of today's episode or any other episode and send over your wish list for future guests too. We're listening. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Cutting the Curd or you can always email us at cuttingthecurd at heritageradionetwork.org. My guest today is Jody Wishy. Vice President of Specialty Sales at ME USA. Jody has worn many hats in cheese. After starting as a cheesemonger at age 14, she joined Coach Farm as a cheesemaker and eventually became their director of sales. Jody then became the director of sales and marketing for Old Chatham Shepherding Company from 1995 to 2002. In 2002, Jody joined Roth Keza to launch their specialty food cheese division, and she's been the vice president of specialty sales since 2008. Jody, welcome to Cutting the Curd. Thanks, Elena. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so happy to have you. So to start things off, I'd like to talk about these experiences you've had throughout your career so far. I feel like, you know, a lot of us have these like windy roots to cheese. um, And it's just incredible that you have done so many different things within the cheese industry throughout your professional career. So um, it's almost like you like grew up in the industry in a way. (laughs) Well, I I, I do feel like I have. Mm -hmm. Um, If someone had asked me when I was 14, at the Maplewood Cheese Shop, if I was going to stay in cheese, I don't think that was um, the plan. Hmm. What was the plan? Did you did you have another sort of vision for what you would do professionally? I wanted to do something in agriculture. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really sure. Um, so, uh, right. You know, I I set off to go to school and and uh, really just loved where I lived and. Hmm. Uh, ended up having that opportunity at Coach Farm, mm-hmm. so as a startup. Right. And when you started at Coach, were you making cheese right away there? Um, yes, I would mm-hmm. say so. Um, I uh, made cheese for a few months, mm-hmm. working under Marie-Claude Chalet who's a French cheesemaker, award winner uh-huh. at the time. She had also worked uh, with Laura Chanel prior to 
um, wow. coming out east. Mm-hmm. And um, I got to apprentice with her for quite a few months. And then, uh, wow. as luck would have it, I was able to do a stint in um, the office. Mm. Um, and uh, based on that, uh, they asked me if I would continue. Hmm. So at that point, did you have, you know, was there something about the the cheese making itself that made you think, well, maybe you want to be on the other side of things, the more um, people-facing sales side, or was it um, something about the office end of things that drew you in? Well, I grew up in um, a family business and was able to um, have the luxury of working in all different departments and really liked sales when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And Was that um, business also in food? It was not. Okay. It was in petrochemical. Oh, okay. It was different not world. something I was aligned, aligned with. Mm. And uh, so I chose to leave the family business, but it did give me a great business acumen to, mm-hmm. as a foundation to work from. And actually, it was because I, got, I loved the goats at Coach Farm, and every day after I would finish working, I'd go and check out the goats that were in the barn to mm. see if there were any new kids. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, um, I got ringworms. And that's how I couldn't be in the creamery. (laughs) And, um, yeah. And so from that, you know, they put me in the office and they Mm -hmm. didn't have what I would say, uh, very skilled, uh, administrators at the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, because of that and my, um, geographic familiarity with New York city, having grown up right outside the city, Mm -hmm. um, I kind of was a perfect match for what they needed at the time was very familiar with all of the small gourmet shops that were throughout the city. Mm-hmm. Who they were and, trying uh, to sell, sell to, to at court. that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it was a good fit. Did you, did you miss the cheesemaking side of things? No, because we still got to, I still was involved with R&D. Hmm. I found the cheese making for myself, you know, I had, we were making uh, fresh cheese and some soft ripened and, the repetitive nature of it, um, mm-hmm. I needed something more than that. Yeah, I feel like myself. it's funny. It's like there's a, there's some people who can really get, it's almost like a Zen Buddhist kind of uh, practice in a way, and some people really thrive in it, and other people sort of need to move on to the next thing or have kind of like fresh projects here and there. Yeah, I certainly um, I appreciate and can totally... Um, respect those that make cheese mm-hmm. every day, but um, m- my creative juices needed something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you jumped over to the, sh- the world of sheep. So you went from goats to sheep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and- I got recruited by the um, owners of then uh, Joan Snyder, who was Hollow Road and a partner in Old Chatham Sheep Herding Company at the mm-hmm. time, and the then new owners, um, I had sold the um, chef who was um, Old Chatham Sheep Herding Company was a Relay Chateau property, mm-hmm. had an inn restaurant, and then the cheese making was, um, I would say, a hobby for them at I the see. time. Uh-huh. And, 
And the chef that was there, Melissa Kelly, knew me very well from selling her goat cheeses, and mm. she recommended me for the sales and marketing job. Hmm. So I got recruited to be there after being at Coach Farm for 11 years. Wow. Went, went and did Old Chatham Sheep Herding Company and worked on their uh, recipes, all their research and development of their new items. And So were you focused there- more on the research and development, or were you also doing sales for them? At, the, at first. Oh, okay. Both. And, oh. and what was the research, research and development program like at that point? Was it, were there a lot of things sort of in the hopper? How much were you working side by side with cheesemakers? What was the process like? Um, we did work side by side and it was really trial and error. And it wasn't as, I would say, structured because the artisan cheese movement was very... Uh, Free, I would say, without limitations mm. at that time. Mm-hmm. Did and it feel so like a, a wide open, almost like pioneering uh, the, the options there? In particularly with the sheep's milk, because there were only there were very few sheep's milk mm. uh, farms and producer at the time. Much like when Coach Farm started, there were just a handful, and now. Right. Today, there's one in every urban city. Yeah. So so when you were, you know, in that setting, sort of as a, a, a more of a pioneer sheep's milk cheese making operation on the sales side of it, did you find that people were open to the idea of sheep's milk cheese or was it a bit of a hard sell? It was not a bit of a hard sell. It was mm. that we were very limited in the amount of products that we had, which made it's extremely difficult to satisfy everybody mm, all the time. Right. So um, that was more the limiting factor than um, people were open to it. We, you know, I would say that when I first started selling goat cheeses in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, people were not very open to it. Mm. You either had to, you know, the cheeses that had come over from France were typically brought in by boat weren't at the peak of their perfection, so to speak, or definitely uh, didn't have the flavor profile. Um, they were basically on the end of their shelf life, those that we got. So they were very goaty and mm-hmm. um, strong, uh, very strong. Right. Um, and uh, most of the chefs at that point were men, mm-hmm. uh, and they were from France at the good restaurants. Mm. and. So uh, there was, I would say, a more chauvinistic attitude that prevailed at that time. Being mm. a woman coming into a man's kitchen wasn't especially, um, they weren't very open. Right. And to, to uh, get goat cheese that wasn't from France but made in the Hudson Valley was a tough sell. And How uh, did you navigate yeah. that? Uh, I'm curious how you navigated, you know, walking into these kitchens with your more, like, gruff, uh, no time for a lady kind of chef approach how did you develop any strategies that you sort of went to in that kind of a setting well my dad told me something a long time ago the worst somebody can tell you is no Hmm. so yeah knowing that that could be the worst that you could hear now you can hear it in a lot of different ways (laughs) um, (laughs) I can say that you can you know no is the worst thing you're going to Mm-hmm. Here and I use that today, and I, it's just always given me the 
um, perseverance to continue to mm-hmm. to um, go for my objective. Yeah. Well, that's a great mindset. I think it's so true. And it's like, it's actually, it just takes the sting out of the whole idea of it, you know? Yes. And, and I have to say, I had a lot of people that, um, you know, certainly closed doors in the beginning. And mm-hmm. since then, they've opened. Mm-hmm. And I just think follow-up and perseverance are just two really good things for salespeople mm-hmm. to continue to think about as they navigate through opportunity. Right. It's, it's such a good point. It's like taking the first no as the final no might not be the best approach in the sales setting, all. right? Interesting. And do you feel like actually that work, kind of getting more people excited about goat cheese, do you feel that that at all paved the way for your sheep's milk cheese, you know, sales? Like, did were people more open, do you think, because they'd already kind of gotten used to this other small ruminant cheese type? Well, I think people have been open to, to new things, and maybe it was a natural progression, but... Mm-hmm. I also was selling to the same clientele that I'd been selling to for the last 11 years and Mm. came with, you know, a good reputation and and people trusted me. Right. You'd built those relationships, sort of had the grooves already in place in a way, right? So they were willing to try things, attempt Mm. things. And I think, you know, everyone always wants to be the first. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So if you have the new thing, that's almost, it's like you're trustworthy, you've got the new product, and nobody else has it yet, sign me up. Right. The sales, as I say, were were, were not difficult. It was having product that was consistent. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the technology here for sheep's milk cheese. It's certainly evolved mm-hmm. over the last, you know, few decades. Same thing with goat's milk cheeses. The cheeses that are being made today are superior to what was certainly in the marketplace mm-hmm. at that point, in my opinion. Right. So then by the time that you got to Emmy, which was at, the, at that point, Roth, Keza, you'd already been the director of sales at both Coach and um, Old Chatham. So what was it about the role at Emmy that drew you in? Well, I wanted to, you know, my whole point with both Coach and Old Chatham was I wanted to do something that sustained farming Mm. and that I really, you know, throughout my childhood really gravitated towards agriculture. Mm. And um, I found that both with Coach and with Old Chatham Sheep Herding Company that although I would have an impact, the impact that I would have would be minimal and not affect as many people. Mm. And so for me, the natural gravitation was to do something on a much larger scale that would be impactful. Hmm. And so I'm pretty honored and proud to say that I feel like I had a little bit of a play in changing um, what we were receiving as far as cow's milk Hmm. to get it to be RBST free. That's great. You know, originally that was you know, not what was available in the marketplace and um, certainly had worked towards that. And um, Roth had some incredible things they had pioneered, like they were the first company to utilize wooden boards Mm -hmm. and um, copper vats. Mm -hmm. And so for me, there was a definite um, synergy Mm -hmm. of coming from an artisan cheese company to to a company that not only produced artisan 
cheeses, but also good commodity products that were certainly available for more of the masses than what um, sheep's milk and goat's milk cheeses had been. Hmm. Um, I Just actually, by nature of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I'm going to follow up on that with a couple of questions, but it's time for a quick break. So we're going to jump out for a moment and then we'll be back to talk a little bit more about that sustained farming sort of drive and how you've achieved that at Emmy. episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. I'm Elena Santigade, and I'm here with Jody Wishy, Vice President of Specialty Sales at Emmy Roth. Um, so, Jody, just before we went on break, you were talking about the fact that that sort of drive to impact a more sustainable um, uh, uh, farming-focused world that that kind of brought you to Emmy to a larger operation, but that was doing things in what sounds like more entrepreneurial way, even. Um, you know, being a pioneer with the wooden boards, as you mentioned, and the copper vats. Um, and I'm curious to hear more about the RBST-free um, milk uh, situation that you um, helped to bring in at Emmy. Can you tell us more about what that, uh, it sounds like, you know, at first you didn't have milk that was RBST-free, and how did you impact, you know, the dairy farmers? How did you find farmers who were willing to make that change with you? So bovine growth hormones are found naturally in cows, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so part of the issue is that you cannot test. Hmm. Um, There's not a test that can say whether you've given additional hormones Hmm. or whether these are naturally occurring. Interesting. And so that's part of the issue was that there wasn't a test, so it was more done on trust. Right. And it's a way, you know, the reason that, you know, someone like Monsanto came up with this lovely growth hormone to offer was because it gave farmers 
a higher yield. Mm -hmm. They um, assumed about a 12% yield Mm, um, in in what they received, but what what it did to their animals Mm. um, was certainly um, not humane, in my opinion. And so um, you would see more arthritis or harder Hmm. to walk or, or, you know, just animals Hmm. that were struggling. And so um, at the time I had a customer that really wanted to change their uh, way of of what products they had Mm -hmm. and, you know, what the source was. And so that gave us the platform to really work with our farmers to receive milk that um, because this customer demanded it Hmm. and it gave us the foothold to be able to change it. And now today it's normal practice for most farms to not um, administer bovine growth hormones. Yeah, that's really interesting. Did you find that you had to do much convincing with the dairy farmers or were people pretty quick to come along once you showed that the market was asking for it? Well, we, we paid a premium at the time, mm-hmm. so that we compensated the farmers to a certain extent for um, changing their practices to make up for their 12% supposed loss hmm. in yield. That's great. Um, the other thing that wasn't really talked about was vet bills or how, mm. <laughs> you know, like there the were hidden other costs. That, mm-hmm. So the hidden costs that you know, you don't really see. And those were all affected. And I can say today that, you know, I'm very proud of um, uh, this program and that, you know, it's become normal practices to uh, not administer bovine growth hormones. Actually, Emmy Roth doesn't take milk from any farmer. Right, right. Yeah, it's really amazing in terms of having... You know, customer trust in the product, that's huge. I see mm-hmm. your, I hear your dogs in the background. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, they sound great. It's transporting me to the farm. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, now you're at, you've been at Emmy, um, and you, you've, you've done this sort of amazing program with the milk quality and, you know, you're doing specialty sales there. I'm curious now, currently in your role, um, what does a typical day look like for you? I think that sometimes the thing that excites me about talking to people who have, you know, a, a, especially like a vice president level job, it's like a, I think our listeners are curious too to just have some insight into like what does that job look like? We can all imagine a cheesemaker makes cheese or even a salesperson is out, you know, boots on the ground visiting shops and chefs. Um, but what does your day look like at this point? Well, it depends if I'm getting on a plane or not. I'm mm-hmm. usually, um, I have a team of salespeople that work with me mm-hmm. in servicing the specialty food trade for us. And um, I uh, coordinate with them mm-hmm. typically in, during the day. I'm also in meetings, not so much, you know, I wouldn't say it's exciting, but <laughs> typical meetings. Mm. Um and and then um, I'm tasting cheese. 
Hmm. which is always the fun part. Totally. I'm glad so, to hear that you're still on a daily basis. You're, you get to do the fun part. Sometimes you sort of get promoted out of the fun part in certain jobs. Well, I, I'm not really thrilled with the spreadsheet, but I do like the, <laughs> to take a look at the paste in the rind. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's it. I think that's great. Um <clears throat> So throughout this time, what are what would you say have been like the most dramatic changes that you've witnessed in the cheese industry? Like you've seen it from a few different vantage points and certainly, you know, over the breadth of your career. Um, what to you stands out in this moment as like, wow, this area of the cheese world is so different from when I was first a monger? Well, when I was first a monger, there was the entire renaissance of the um, cheese making that was happening here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And we went from just being producers of cheddar and Colby mm. um, to having small artisan um, producers that started out. And those predominantly were goat cheese producers mm-hmm. by nature of the size of the animal and how many animals you needed in order to start to make um, cheese. And so they popped up fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, Laura Chanel and Coach were some of the starters. And then there was um, Vermont Creamery mm-hmm. and yeah. um, Capriole right. and Cypress right. Grove. And yeah. then from there, it really disseminated into quite a bit more. And some have we've lost mm-hmm. and some... We haven't, and the landscape has changed, I would say, dramatically. Mm-hmm. So those companies that I've named have, for the most part, been acquired by or merged right. with other companies. And right. the landscaping is definitely changing from being what I would say more like Mary Keene, a hippie mm-hmm. generation <laughs> of people doing it as a sustaining a livelihood. Right, like almost a home, the homesteader origins. That's correct. Mm-hmm. To, to today, it's more big business and international business. Mm. Do you think there and, are more? Uh, do you think there are more opportunities for like cheese careers? Like as you hire people in your, as you have hired people in your different roles, are you seeing sort of more opportunities for folks in the cheese industry, or do you feel like? Well, just the idea that we have a certification for mm-hmm. cheesemongers today, right? Um, in a credit accreditation that we can offer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really feel that when I was selling cheese, there were a few of us. Mm. Right. <laughs> like you, you today weren't competing at the, uh, the cheesemonger invitational at the time, right? <laughs> right. Today there's a plethora of people that are yeah. out there that have cheese jobs mm-hmm. and what those jobs are, whether they're category merchants or buyers or mongers mm-hmm. or, you know, producers and the idea that we certainly are um, a field that people aspire to be part of, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. not just to eke out a, a living, but actually, you know, uh, a livelihood that's inspiring for mm-hmm. them. Yeah. yeah. So I, here's a question. What do you think about the sort of landscape of the e-commerce side of things from more of a sales, um, like how do sales happen and, and uh, ha- the future of sales? You know, I think everybody is, is still sort of waiting for the, shoe to, the other shoe to drop in terms of like how 
big sort of online retailers are going to change the landscape of how people buy cheese. Um, but what do you think about that? Do you, are you watching for anything specific in that part of the industry? Well, we, we certainly are watching, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, um, it's a little bit of smoke and mirrors for those of us that weren't raised in technology. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> it's like and, you're watching, uh, but watching what? <laughs> right. Exactly. We're not sure, but, um, I, I do know that there is a lot of energy that's going towards, um, e-commerce, both mm-hmm. from a manufacturer standpoint, as well as from a retailer or mm-hmm. for a food service operator there, you know, everybody wants to play. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's sure exactly what they're going to get out of it, mm-hmm. um, I know for us, we've put some energy into making sure that we're involved with social media and we're right. involved as a business from from that angle. Right. And I was not a large proponent of it when we first got started, mm-hmm. just because I felt that it had to be tangible. You had to smell it and taste it and feel it in order to want to buy it. Right. But there's a whole generation that wants more convenience mm-hmm. and I'll be happy to send it back if it doesn't taste or look or feel the way that their expectation is. Right. And um, so it's just coming from a different mindset. I believe that will, you know, just based on what we're seeing, we will see more. Mm-hmm. Um, I see for myself, I've started to order dog food online. Mm. And I, you know, just for the convenience of not having to schlepping those big bags. Those big Exactly. And so with that, what else am I going to get? I haven't gotten to the point where I've ordered cheese online. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I know there's lots of people who do it. And we at Emmy Roth are certainly counting on them to do it. Mm. We are courting them both on social media and with our customers for geotargeting. Very interesting. Um, That's a whole other show, I feel like. (laughs) (laughs) that we could talk about. (laughs) What would you say, and maybe this overlaps, but what would you say is your biggest priority right now at work? My biggest priority at Mm -hmm. work? Well, of course, to make sure that the cheeses that we have um, are out to our customers Mm -hmm. that want them for the holidays. Right, fill those orders. I guess, yeah, (laughs) it's not such a hard question when I think about the date. That was not, but, you know, ultimately it's about, you know, trying for, you know, to set us up for next year to have a successful year Mm -hmm. and to make sure that um, all of our people are safe during the holidays. So those are things that I'm concerned about. Well, those those are great things to think about, especially when you're at the helm. Um, I can't believe it, but we're actually coming up at the end of our episode. I have one final question for you. And of course, since it's just a few days before Thanksgiving, it is Thanksgiving related. And I'm just purely curious what cheeses you might be serving or bringing to your Thanksgiving meal. Well, we'll have a few. So we have a a cheese plate that we're going to put out Mm -hmm. that has an extra age Roth private reserve. Mm. Um, that is our raw milk cheese that's just tasting absolutely delicious. How old is that, then, the extra aged? It's about 18 months. Mm, yum. And it's, it's delightful. Mm-hmm. It has that nutty, caramelized flavor, um, and it's, it's dense and fudgy, mm. really just 
Yeah, um, the sweet spot. Cook with it or <laughs> just eat eat it. Right. Okay. Um. <laughs> so that's that's the start of it. Um, we'll also put out um, a piece of Lamar Shaw, which mm. is made by the Repen family mm-hmm. um, in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, and uh, a piece of Kalbach Lecremo will be the three cheeses. Um, that'll be from the cow's milk side. Mm-hmm. And then um, a goat cheese from Cypress Grove. Mm-hmm. I have a truffle tremor. Oh, yeah. And then my, my daughter's in love with um, Latour. Oh, um, yes. So she's, she's, so we'll have a The piece. spell has been cast on her, the Latour spell. <laughs> yes. Either that or Robiola. She was just going shopping, so I don't know what Oh, we nice. So we don't get, know what she'll was, land on. Well, so I don't know which one of those. The rest are all here already. Wow. And, I um, like how prepared you are with this cheese selection. And will you serve all of these before the meal? We'll serve some before the meal, mm-hmm. and then we'll serve um, them alongside fruit for dessert as well. Yum. Perfect. It's my favorite type of, my favorite way to do it. Sandwich the meal with cheese. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jody, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It was a pleasure, Elena. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Also, listeners, you know, we were mentioning, we were talking about uh, cheesemongers and opportunities, and I was thinking that uh, I wanted to just give the heads up that for any competitive cheesemongers out there, even if you don't think of yourself as a competitive cheesemonger, uh, here's a quick reminder that you can still sign up to compete in the Winter Cheesemonger Invitational, that glorious festival of cheese and competition um, happening in San Francisco this year. I believe it's happening on January 19th, but you can head to cheesemongerinvitational.com to register. I think it's a great way to connect with a lot of the other people in the industry and just talking with Jody and hearing about her path and how one thing led to another made me think of that. So um, listeners, also be sure to tune in next week for Diane's interview with Mark Kurlansky, author of Milk, a 10,000-year food fracas. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you have a fun week ahead and a great Thanksgiving. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.